All right. Hello, everybody. I have a guest today, a very special guest. Her name is Christina Stye. She is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she is also a neurodivergent person. You have the diagnosis of autism, yes? Yes. And do you also have ADHD? I don't think we talked about this. Or are you just a... Yeah, autism and ADHD, self-diagnosed, okay. but I'm a psychologist, so I feel pretty <laughs> confident in diagnosing is one way to get a diagnosis is just become a psychologist and diagnose yourself. <laughs> That's the long way around, probably. Um, but Christina um, wanted to come on the podcast and talk a little bit about, first of all, some of the issues surrounding the DSM and her perspective as a psychologist. I know I did that episode on the DSM um, a little while back and she heard that and she wanted to reach out and sort of see if she could give her two cents on that whole thing, which I thought would be a really interesting um, thing to have a psychologist point of view, a neurodivergent psychologist point of view on the DSM. And also talk about some other things as far as like resources for all of you all who are trying to get assessed and if, you know, who should even be seeking out an official diagnosis or assessment, um, you know, and like I said, how she interprets the DSM and how she kind of works with it to, to maybe help diagnose people that don't fit all those usual stereotypes. So let's just start by sort of, um, talking a little bit about, the the DSM stuff and like kind of your thoughts on on what I had to say and and your thoughts on the DSM as a whole because I'm really curious <laughs> yeah. yeah so um yeah so I reached out um to you Melissa after well we've been in contact a little bit but I reached out to you specifically after your DSM episode because you were really fired up on that episode and I got really fired up listening um to you um in in a good way I I think but um so yeah I have a lot of thoughts about the DSM um the the thing the main thing though that I would say is that so the DSM is definitely not perfect by by any means um and actually I was going to ask you when you were going through the criteria that you found was that with because there was a, a recent update to the DSM um that just came out I think it just came out this year um so the most recent DSM is now the DSM 5 TR which TR stands for text revision um there is not a lot of differences in like the autism criteria specifically, but there are some. Um, and um, so for your listeners, that's something I guess just maybe to kind of be mindful of. So if you are going to do like a search for the DSM criteria, it is available online. Um, what is not available online or well, it shouldn't be online because it's copyrighted material, but maybe it is. I don't know. So there is the diagnostic criteria, right? Just kind of like the bullet points and listing all of that. But um, there, like after that, I'm like staring at my like DSM right now. This is like how thick the DSM is. Yeah, it's gigantic. <laughs> it is like thousands of, oh, it's like almost a thousand pages, the one that I am holding in my hands right now. And it 
is like the size and weighs like you know a small like newborn infant yeah. um so it's like it is massive the dsm it has the diagnostic criteria listed but beyond that there are pages and pages and pages that go into a lot of detail around each of those diagnostic criteria and this is true for any diagnosis so for autism for adhd for anxiety disorders mood disorders anything like that my experience has been that the vast majority of clinicians do not read those pages so we're we're trained to use the dsm right to diagnose but most of us and i would say like i'm guilty of this too right because again like when i we're when i have somebody in the room with me and i'm trying to kind of figure out what's going on i don't necessarily always feel like i have the time per se to go through you know another 5 10 pages of like really like literally like six point font yeah. <laughs> to like read all of like the nuances of a diagnosis. However, um, when it comes to autism in particular, there is a lot of nuance and detail in there that when I was reading through it, um, it's actually really helpful and relevant and gives a lot of detail that I think the vast majority of clinicians are missing. Um, so that is what I would say, like my, I, I have issues with the DSM for sure. Um, but I would say my biggest issue that I have is I do not think that, um, that psychologists, psychologists are mainly the ones that are doing testing, right? Um, I don't think they're reading the DSM. And, and I actually, and I, and I know that people are not because I um I was telling you a little bit earlier I'm in a couple of um autistic uh, uh, Facebook groups for autistic adults uh -huh. and people will post in there about their assessment experiences and I've had people I've seen people post in there um and say hey like I went in for an assessment and the person that assessed me said there's no way that I could be autistic because xyz and they list all of these factors and I'm looking at these factors and none of those are in the DSM Right. The reasons that psychologists are even giving for not giving a diagnosis don't even have anything to do with the DSM. So so I do think the DSM has its problems, but I think the bigger problem is that people are not reading the DSM. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. It's there are so many people who I've seen posting the same thing, like, oh, the doc, you know, the psychologist was like, oh yeah, you can't possibly have autism because of this. I had one, I had a psychologist say that to me, um, say like, oh, well, there's no way you're autistic. You, you were married, you have children. And I'm like, I don't think that's in the DSM. First of all, not in the diagnostic criteria there. So, uh, yeah, it's, that's definitely a, uh, it seems like could be a big issue. Um, and if they're only partially, you know, if they are reading it and only sort of getting part of the info. And one of the things I said in that episode was that the way that those criteria, it's very subjective to me. Like it's maybe it's cause I'm, I am like, my brain needs all of the detail, but to me, I'm like, this is very open-ended. Like this could be interpreted so many different ways by so many different people. One psychologist could see this and have a totally different image in their head of what this person looks like than someone else, you know? So to me, I'm like, that's kind of dangerous 
to have mm -hmm. it written that way. Yeah, and I think um, I there are reasons I think for it. They're trying to be a little bit more nuanced and open ended with it, but I I agree. I think that it the problem is then whoever is reading it is putting whatever interpretation onto it that that they want, and and I mean based on their education and training, you know. So the other side of it is I would say that the vast majority of psychologists, and I would include myself in that category. So I got my doctorate degree um 10 years ago it's yeah wow that's that makes me feel old um, I got my degree you look very young. <laughs> I'm like wow you did because you look very uh yeah I got my doctorate degree 10 years ago and I can tell you for sure I I had I loved my program I had really great training um there I was very happy with my experience um and this was, of course, you know, I mean, a decade ago, I didn't know at that point that I was neurodivergent in any way. Um, I worked with a lot of neurodivergent kids. I mean, so I've worked with autistic um, ADHDers, learning disabilities, intellectual disabilities. I've worked with that, like, kind of that population of kids for, for decades at this point. Um, and I can tell you that I in no way was educated appropriately to really understand like the nuances of, of autism and ADHD, particularly then how that pertains like to the adult population. Um, yeah. And, you know, I would say, I mean, the conversation 10 years ago, I don't even think that there was conversation really 10 years ago around like, oh, like adults who have been like missed for, for autism in particular. I mean, to me, I really started just coming across that really honestly within the last maybe three years three to five years maybe um and so most most psychologists just they're not even trained and and so I would say like with that like it's not really there's there's something that's broken in the system and so it's not I, I can't even really blame psychologists for not having the education and the training when that's just not even something that's provided to them you know so yeah. unless people like the reason I got educated in it was number one, I realized that I was neurodivergent. And so I started doing all of the research around that. Um, and then it became a special interest of mine <laughs> because that's a population that I work with. Um, so what, you know, what better like rabbit hole to go down than that. So I have, I have put in a lot of like work and energy into training and educating myself around it and based off of my personal experiences and then the, the most of the people. Um, so I, I have my own practice. I work mostly with neurodivergent individuals. I do testing and I do therapy. Um, and that's like my population. So I, I educated myself. That was not training that I received in school. And most psychologists, I, I would say even to this day, are probably not getting that level of training. I hope it's better now than it was 10 years ago. Um, but I think that's a, the, a bigger, a big barrier because, you know, I think, um, and I, I would guess that, you know, most of your listeners are adults who either have been diagnosed with autism or ADHD or some other neurodivergent condition, or maybe think that they are, um, or are maybe considering getting an assessment. And most of the people that are providing the assessments, they don't have the training and education around even knowing how to appropriately identify outside of whatever like the stereotypes are yeah yeah 
Clearly. Yeah. Clearly it's a problem. And I feel like at the moment we're in a very like us against them mentality when it comes to neurodivergent people and psychologists, because I feel like a lot of people have been so dismissed by whoever they're seeing or seeking a diagnosis from, or just seeking some answers from. Um, And I think that's part of the problem too, is like certain psychologists now, not all of them, of course, but like there are, you know, a good majority of them right now who, if a person comes to them is like, Hey, I think I might be autistic, like, and, you know, they rattle off immediately, like X, Y, Z, why you couldn't possibly be possibly be autistic. It just makes you feel like they're not even willing to listen and just automatically writing you off as someone who's, you know, confused or maybe watch too many TikToks or maybe you're trying to get attention or whatever, instead of taking like a step back and being like, you know, let me really listen to this person and see why. For some reason, it seems like there are so many clinicians who are like, let me just like stop this person in their tracks. No, you're not autistic. And that's that. Bye. And I feel like that also is a big part of the problem because I think maybe if some clinicians would just like take a minute to like dig deeper and listen and really like hear about this stuff that Mm -hmm. it might have a different outcome. Um, But I think it's sort of like, I don't know, it's become, it's become sort of like this tug of war of like, no, you're not autistic. And yes, um, I am like, it just feels very like, it's like full of controversy right now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, to be honest, I think um, a lot of, I think a lot of psychologists are really turned off. Like if someone comes in and is like, hey, I saw this TikTok or I saw this like Instagram post or um, I think that a lot of psychologists get really turned off by that. Um, And I do think I do have I do have some issues with people just like kind of casually posting like, oh, if you have this, 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 then that means you're autistic, right? People who don't have like the training and education around it. But at the same time, I would say, okay, so people with lived experience that have had that have gone through certain things, you know, in some ways, like if people have have lived experience, then that I don't think that that gets trumped by somebody who has had education around and especially in an area where like I know I can say to you like my program was awesome we were not appropriately trained to identify autism and ADHD we just we weren't we weren't and there were a lot of other you know and I would say no programs were at that time so again I'm not even faulting the program that I attended um but there's there's a shift happening and so and social media is like a big part of that you know, and I think that it's actually because of social media and people putting things out there that there's even been this like, like the whole like hashtag actually autistic and and all of that, right? Like, there have been autistic adults that are now kind of really taking a stand and creating like a whole like advocacy movement. And that that is the reason it's not because of psychologists. 
that all of a sudden like more autistic adults are coming out of the woodwork it's because adults have been recognizing wait a minute like there's like there's something going on and we need to talk about it and we need to not um have there just continue to be like this stigma around it you know so social media in a lot of ways I think has really brought that that's been the thing that's brought it out of the woodwork so I I have um, and there are a lot of I follow a lot of autistic like I follow your account right like I follow and I followed your account before you were even like officially diagnosed like you know so there are plenty of like lay people out there that like are not professionals that have lived experience and may or may not have a you know formal diagnosis and I think um it's all about just kind of knowing like what resources to pull from and who to listen to you know so and I think um kids and teens in particular are really like vulnerable to being influenced by social media um so there's just, to me, like, that's like such a big barrier. I think that so many assessors are so just like turned off as soon as they hear like, oh, I saw this or I watched this, you know, TikTok that they immediately just like put like, they just wall it off and are like, nope, you know, where I would say, well, what about like what you said, like kind of opening, like being curious, like, oh, tell me a little bit about that. Like, whose account were you following? What did you see? What did they talk about there? And including yeah. that as part of the assessment process. And then there can be some like education provided around that, right? Because if I'm open to talking to somebody and saying, yeah, tell me what you saw, like what, you know, what, what accounts do you follow? Right. I'm on social media. Let me check out those accounts. I'd be happy to, you know, and, and again, including that. And if there's things that I can identify that I know are like way off, then I'll speak to that. But yeah. to just like totally like stonewall somebody I think is really problematic. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think, yeah, that's exactly what I was alluding to where it's just like the, the wall goes up and it's like, nope, you're being ridiculous. You're not autistic and goodbye. And, um, I think, you know, what you said about, it can be a little bit, uh, dangerous for people who do post like, oh, you know, these five things mean you're autistic or whatever, you know, like those types of, of posts and stuff I agree are like uh, well they're like entertaining to to watch as an autistic person because I'm like yeah that's true but also I did another episode where I talked about how there's no such thing as autistic traits actually like it's just like my ability to manage certain things is different than someone without autism like so or my coping with certain things just looks different than someone who doesn't have autism so it's like you know just because someone has a hard time with small talk that doesn't mean necessarily mean you're autistic you know or just because you know you stim sometimes that doesn't mean you're autistic like everybody stims it's just maybe <laughs> that's true, that's maybe true. everybody has stim yeah so it's like it's hard because you're like, oh my gosh, these five things, maybe I am autistic, but also for a psychologist, for someone to feel strongly enough to go to a psychologist, I feel like it's worth it to at least like dig a little deeper and ask more questions, you know, and be like, okay, what did you relate to about that post? Like, like, let's talk about, you know, your childhood. Let's talk about how you were as a teenager. Let's talk about you know, what your life is like now, like just sort of try and 
feel it out, but it feels like so many people are just like immediately cut off, dismissed, like, Mm -hmm. nope, you made too much eye contact or nope, you've, you have a successful career or nope, you, you've been married and you have kids. Like there's all of these things that is like, no, you couldn't possibly because of this. And it's just, then the conversation ends there. So I do think that social media is like a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's been a blessing and a curse at the same time, because I think it has helped open so many people's eyes to their own neurodivergence, whether it be autism or something else. Um, but also it can sort of be maybe potentially misleading. But I think that on on the whole, like if someone's relating to that content, there's something going on probably, even if it's not autism. Yeah, and that's something to explore, right? Like, and so, and I would say, and so whether you're, so whether you're um, a psychologist who's doing an assessment or, um, or you're a therapist and your client is coming to you, you know, I would say like, it is worth, it is worth your time and it is worth their time to at least listen and hear them out, right? Um, And put your own kind of biases aside or your own kind of preconceived ideas, you know, it's, it's okay to have, I mean, I think we, we're all, we all have our opinions and our judgments, right? But your role, like for my role as a, as a therapist is I'm putting aside my own personal biases, my own opinions, and I'm there for the client. So if you're, if, if, if you're a provider, if you're going to a therapist or an assessor who is not even willing to hear you out, I like get another therapist. <laughs> like that would be my like kind of first piece of advice. If you have somebody that's just not even willing to like entertain the idea, you know, now, I mean, that's, you know, if you've been going back to the same person and you're like repeatedly wanting to go over like the same material over and over and over again, right. And kind of go into all of the inner details, like there may be, maybe there needs to be like some boundaries set or, you know, like I can understand why some, you know, clinicians would be like, okay, like we need to maybe like what, what else is really going on if you're so fixated on this thing. Right. But to not even give someone like the time of day when they're just wanting to try to share their experience, I think is really inappropriate um, as a, as a therapist. So, yeah. Very true. Um, I kind of want to know your, your thoughts on like how to know, because there's a lot of people out there who are unsure about if they should even seek an assessment or a diagnosis. Um, it's a big decision because it is a very time consuming and costly process right now, which I also have thoughts on that. Uh, but there are people who are really um, comfortable being self-diagnosed and there are people who are kind of like unsure if they should seek a diagnosis or not. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So especially, and I mean, we're talking like in adulthood mostly, right? Cause I'm assuming like, yeah, most of, cause yeah. most of your kids are like uh, adults, right? So adult, they're like an older teenager, I guess. Yeah. So I, I would say like, if you are at a, to me, um, so if you are in school, um, so if you are, if you're, if you're a parent and if you have a kid who you think might be autistic, um, I do think like for kids and for teenagers, it is most of the time going to be, it is worth getting a formal assessment done. 
Um, and the primary reason around that is for accommodations in school. Um, so if your kid is struggling, um, that's really to me like what a formal evaluation is for because a school will generally like they're not going to provide accommodations and resources or like a special education plan if there is not a formal diagnosis they're just not going to because it costs them money so they're they're not going to really do anything that they don't like have to do right and there's a lot of really amazing schools and I know that they care about their the kids but that just it, it honestly it comes down to like resources and financing and funding so I, I feel very strongly about that of, of having formal evaluations done in childhood and, you know, if you're or if you're a teenager or a young adult, if you're um, getting ready to go into college or if you're currently in college or in a trade school or something like that, I think in any situation where you would potentially benefit from some sort of like accommodations, that to me would be a reason to get a formal assessment. Now we could extend that into adulthood too, right? Because people have their careers and they're in the workplace and, and all of that. Um, and I would say, you know, depending on what field of work you're in, um, you know, some people may have environments where it's a very accommodating environment and people are willing, you know, a boss or supervisor is just really willing to kind of work with you around whatever your needs are because our needs are our needs regardless of what our diagnosis is right so if someone's sensitive to light for example and needs you know to be in a, a place that's more dimly lit or doesn't have those like god-awful fluorescent lights everywhere <laughs> or something like that that's an accommodation that an employer could make right and and you don't necessarily need to have a diagnosis for that but um i would say to me, a formal evaluation is important anywhere where you would need, um, where you need that to be able to get accommodations. Um, I think outside of that, to me, it's really kind of a matter of personal choice. Um, so I do testing for a lot of adults. The vast majority of adults that are coming to me are are doing a formal assessment because they just it's for their own benefit. Like they just want to know for sure. Right. And they just want to like they, they want to know a little bit more about themselves um, or maybe they have a really complex history. So I have a lot of people coming to me. Um, I do a lot of trauma work in therapy, too. So I have people coming to me with like really complex trauma histories um, or have had really pervasive, maybe like social anxiety or other things like that. And they really aren't sure. They're really wanting to kind of navigate like, well, I think I meet criteria, but there's also all of these other things going on. Um, so in that situation, yeah, I mean, I I will do a formal assessment with anyone who wants it um, and has the means to to do so because you alluded to this, you know, to get a formal assessment, it it is um, there's a lot of time involved. Um, depending on your insurance coverage, it might be an expensive process. Um, you know, so there are a lot of factors to consider. Um, but I, you know, if you're an adult and you don't really need accommodations or you're in a workplace that is very accommodating and you don't need a formal diagnosis to have those accommodations, I, I don't, I have no problem with people self-diagnosing, you know, to, to a degree. But if you're looking for certain accommodations or things like that, or if you need a diagnosis for something to get like um, like a like a service animal or something like that, right? Um, but really out, outside of that, I think it's more a matter of personal preference. So again, most of the adults that come to me 
just it's for them. Like, and I do my whole report and I give it to them and they can do whatever they want with it. They don't have to give it to anybody else if they don't want to, but it's for them. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I fell into that, that category of people where it was like, I really just wanted to know. And I do have a lot of like past trauma and things that can um, definitely co-occur with autism, but they can also present like autism. So I'm like, which one is it? And I was pretty sure, but then I was like, I just need to like sort all of this stuff out and make sure because, you know, I don't want to be, I don't know. I just, I needed to be sure. Um, and what you said about like younger people, kids and teenagers and stuff getting diagnosed, I fully like 100% agree with that as a mom of two kids who have both autism and ADHD, one of which we did not find out until he was an adult. He's 25 now. And we just sort of, he got his ADHD diagnosis probably about three or four years ago. And then when I got my autism diagnosis, he hasn't been officially diagnosed, but it's clear now (laughs) to uh, both of us that that also exists in him. But my daughter, you know, is, she got diagnosed, um, with ADHD and autism around the same time she was about eight years old and she's 14 now. Um, and it's been immensely helpful in being able to have an IEP in place for her and have accommodations at school, though she hates to use accommodations, but they're there if she needs them. Um, and, but I will say that it wasn't easy to get her diagnosed. And if you're a parent who has a kid who isn't super stereotypical autistic, like my daughter is a girl, first of all, and she wasn't like the stereotypical autistic kid that people would think of. Um, So it was really difficult to find a doctor that would even entertain the idea. And it's funny because the psychologist who ended up diagnosing her is autistic himself. And he didn't even have to spend five minutes with her. He did a full assessment, but he was like, oh yeah, (laughs) yeah, she's, she's autistic, but yeah, we're going to go through all the things. Um, so yeah, it's, it can be an arduous process even to get your kid diagnosed. It's, it's just sort of, it's really sad how, how much you have to advocate for yourself or for your child in these types of situations. But I do think we're kind of we're kind of at a turning point right now. I think, I think a lot of this stuff is coming to light and it's controversial right now. And there's sort of like a push and pull and a tug of war over it right now. Um, but I think a lot of psychologists are sort of coming around to the idea that yes, like you can be a functioning adult and have autism and you, you know, there's highly masking people and there's people who, you know, have just like learned all of these coping mechanisms and ways to get by. Um, and with that, you get to a point where you, you know, <laughs> where it's like, uh, and it says it even in the DSM where like, it goes into more detail. It does talk about that. It talks about masking. And again, like the part that I would said that most psychologists I know don't read. Yeah. Right? where it's like the, the demands exceed your ability to like meet those demands or whatever. I don't remember the exact verbiage, but it was something like that. Like you can no longer meet the demands <laughs> of what you're expected to do. And it's true. Like there's so many adults that reach a point that they're like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with me? I'm like not functioning well in life. And it just, it's like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just autistic. So <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so I kind of want to know, we didn't talk about whether or not we were going to talk about this, but I'm kind of curious how you um, sort of started discovering that you were autistic. Sure. Yeah. So um, talking about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for me, um, it it happened, I think, largely because of COVID. Um, so uh, my husband has a lot of underlying health um, conditions. And so we still to this day, we're, we've been very conservative with our approach to COVID. Um, so we spent, I mean, especially like the entire first year, it was basically like I, I shut my my. I didn't shut my business down, but I shut my doors and I switched entirely to telehealth. And it was my husband and I together, like 24 seven, my husband owns the, um, my therapy company with me, we co-founded it. Um, and so we were together all the time. Um, and, uh, we had been, I mean, we had been together for a long time and we had been married for a little over two years at that point. Um, so, I mean, knew each other pretty well, but like before COVID, I would say like even couples that like, or families just in general, like we weren't spending 24 seven with each other. Right. And so COVID kind of created this unique opportunity where we were like all like around each other all the time. And I think there were some pros and cons to that. Um, but it was actually my husband that he said, he just was like, Christina, like I, I think that this, like, I think you might be autistic. Like, I think this is going on for you because I'm, um, I think talking in, in generality, like with, you know, in confidentiality, but around, around a, some clients and stuff and some struggles that some of my clients were having. And he was like, well, but you do that too. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I'm like, no, I don't. He's like, yeah. And I think like one of the first things that he told, that he talked to me about is, um, he said that he would like see me stim and I didn't know that I was like stimming. So he's like, yeah, he's like, you, he's like, when you take the dogs out, he's like, you're like doing weird things. Like while the dogs are outside, he's like, you're moving around and like your hands are doing like weird things. He's like, you do it every time you take the dogs out. And I had no clue, first of all, that I was like even doing that. Um, and then I was like mortified that I was doing that because I just had no awareness around it. And he was like, it's fine. He's like, it's just like a weird thing that you do and whatever. Like, but yeah. to me, I was like, oh my gosh, like I do that and I'm stimming and I don't even realize that I'm stimming. And he didn't call it stimming because he didn't know what it was called. But he's like, yeah, yeah like you do this. You do these like weird movements with your hands. Um so it was that, and then there were, uh, there were other things like, so I have, I have struggles with like emotion regulation and like overstimulation and things like that, um, that as just, I got really defensive at first when he brought it up because I was like, no way. I'm like, I'm a professional on autism. Like I've worked with autistic kids for this many years and you don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. And I just like, and again, like, this is me with having so much experience and education around autism, but it was so like focused, like in the wrong direction in a lot of ways. Right. Um, where somebody who had like really no training or education around it was able to identify in me things that really did align with the autistic experience 
in an adult. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really it for me. And so then I, I opened myself up a little bit to exploring that. Um, and then I, uh, I went down a rabbit hole. I started doing research. Um, I came across a couple of um, accounts and actually yours was one of them that I came across, Melissa. So you were one of, uh, you were one of the first people that I started following, like kind of in that journey. And I don't even know, I can't even remember how long you've had your podcast going for. Um, that's a good question. I started it at some point during the pandemic. So yeah, it's been a couple of years, I think. I don't even know. That's bad. I should know how long I've been doing this, but <laughs> well, so I, I have no time in general these days. So, yeah. So yours was one of the first that I came across. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Megan, uh, Megan Anna Neff was another one that I came across and she's also a psychologist and um, she's one and, and she's got a really big following on, on Instagram now um, at this point. And um, I've had the opportunity to connect with her and just and a lot of her story really like aligned with mine and then and that just kind of to me like I saw her and I'm like oh I'm like well if she's autistic then I could be autistic too because like she's just like a normal person and right right? and I think that was like for me I had to really break down like that stereotype of feeling like oh this means that there's something like wrong with me which you know it was so weird because even in like the with the kids that I worked with I never approached any of my autistic clients, like there was something wrong with them. But when I was going to go like apply it to myself, I had this like such like a negative view of it. So um, that was just really just interesting. I'm like, why am I putting so much like judgment and like negativity onto it for myself? And like, I don't like look at my clients that way. Like, where's the disconnect there? Um, Yeah. But so yeah my story and I've been I mean I'm still in the process right like I'm I'm still like every day going through a process of learning to manage and learning to accept and kind of navigate and identify you know okay what is like where are areas that I just need to be like okay like I need to kind of just get to a place of acceptance that this is just who I am you know versus like hey like I know that there's some things that I can work on like my time management skills or something like that, that there's things that I know that I can improve that right. I can get better at if I put like the dedication to it and work into it. Um, but yeah, yeah. that's story with that. It is a process, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's a, it might be just like a lifelong process of, of sort of unpacking things and learning new things. And it's funny how you said your husband noticed that you were stimming and you didn't even realize because I'll bet you realize now when you're doing it because I know that I all like I'm so aware now of the stuff that I do with my body and my hands and stuff that like I'm sure I was doing it before it's not a new thing but I don't think I realized until I realized and then I'm like oh my gosh I do this and then you almost get like you get self-conscious about it, but then you're like, I shouldn't be self-conscious about it. I should just let myself do it. But now that I'm aware of it, I kind of stop myself and I don't let myself do it. And it's like a whole big thing. I've been really trying to work on that. Cause I'm like, I need to just let myself be, but sometimes it's hard because you do feel kind of like weird or out of place or like no one else does this or whatever. And it's, yeah, there's just so much around discovering this later in life, later in life, by later in life, I just mean like 
pretty much like past your formative years, you know, I think later in life, autism diagnosis can apply to like a 20 year old. It's like, you know, and then the older you get, of course, the more it's like, oh, dang, it's been a long time of this being (laughs) history. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think the last thing I want to talk about is for you to sort of let everyone know about maybe some resources or some ideas for people who want to kind of seek out an assessment are there you know things that they should look out for any recommendations you have or maybe just people who are comfortable being self-diagnosed and how to kind of lean into that process too absolutely um yeah and that that was honestly I think like one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to come on here is I was just like I want to be able to give to be able to help point people in like a good direction um, of even knowing like where to look or what is available or what what to look out for or who do I like how do I know like who's going to be like if I'm wanting to get an assessment who do I go to like who's going to be a good assessor Um, so I do have uh, a couple of like thoughts and resources I would say the first thing that I would say is if you can find If you can find somebody who is neurodivergent themselves, that is fantastic. Now I'm saying that with a little bit of hesitation because number one, I know that there are a lot of clinicians out there who are not necessarily out with their neurodivergence. So just because somebody is not openly like advertising that they're autistic or have ADHD, that doesn't are not neurodivergent. Um, but you know, coming across somebody who is very open about um about uh their neurodivergence, that's I think that's a good starting, that's a good like, yes, that's a good starting point. So Read if you can find yeah, so if you can find somebody who is neurodivergent themselves, I think, um, and whether that's just for seeking out like their for therapy or for assessment, um, right? Um Or at the very least, I would say finding somebody who is neurodivergent affirming. Um, Now, even with that, I have some caveats because I know a lot of people that will kind of advertise themselves as neurodivergent affirming. And I think that they're just using that kind of as a catchphrase to attract neurodivergent clients and they don't necessarily fully maybe always know what that means. so it, I, I would say, like, do your research. Like, if you're looking for a provider, and again, I can speak mostly to the mental health side of things because that's the field that I'm in. Um, so for therapy or if you're wanting to get, like, a formal evaluation. Um, but those are the things to look for. You know, I, I would encourage people to find somebody who's either neurodivergent themselves or is neurodivergent affirming. Um, and, you know, and and it may take a couple of, trial runs before you find somebody who you really connect to. Um, and I would encourage people like, like that's okay. okay. Like I, again, granted, if you have like the time and the resources and all of that, right. Cause I know that can be a big barrier for people, especially like with insurance and things like that. Um, you know, um, but those, those would be the big things. Um, If you are going to be getting an evaluation, I would say that if you come across somebody who is basically telling you that they're going to give you an evaluation and like 
it's like kind of like a one-stop shop and it's like, oh, like we'll talk for, you know, it'll be one appointment and you talk with somebody for an hour, a half an hour, whatever that is, that is not an evaluation. Um, and a lot of people though will kind of tout that as like that they're doing like a formal autism assessment. And that is just, that is not possible. Like there is no way that you are going to be able to get enough information from somebody by having a 30 minute conversation with them. Like, I don't care how good you think you are. So if anyone is seeking out a provider and they're telling you that it's going to only take a half an hour or an hour or even two hours, like that is not a full evaluation. Um, now, and I would say like, if that's, if, if you don't want any more than that, that's fine. I mean, so I would let people, you know, pick whatever, you know, I would defer to whatever somebody else wants, right? But um, as an example, so my my evaluations are really comprehensive. If I am doing, um, if someone's coming to me and they think that they may be autistic and or have ADHD and we're kind of trying to rule in or out either or both of those, I mean, I am doing somewhere between six to 10 hours of testing. And that's including cognitive testing, that's including clinical interviews, that's including um, contact with like, uh, with, with people in their, in their lives. So, a, you know, a partner or a spouse, um, parents, siblings. Um, and again, if the family dynamics allow for that, right, because in adulthood, family dynamics can be complicated. And sometimes there aren't people around, or it may not be appropriate to involve, you know, other people. But it's a very comprehensive process because again, you had said this, you know, earlier, autism and ADHD are developmental conditions. So if I have an adult, if I have a, you know, a 40 year old adult coming to me, I need to be able to assess as best as possible what their childhood was like. And can we, can I make a good argument that there was, that there were some of these traits present in childhood right? That's, that's part of what we need to be as an assessor, I need to be identifying that. Um, so uh, it, it's a comprehensive process. I'm also autistic. So I like love assessment. So I like, so I do very detailed assessments. Now, so you know, not every, not every psychologist will do that comprehensive in an evaluation. Um, I'm also in an area where the insurance coverage is really good. So for me, most people that are coming in are paying very little, if anything, out of pocket. And I love that because it allows me to be able, like I know that it's gonna be paid for for them and I feel like I can really do my job and it's not, it's costing them their time obviously, right? But they're not having to shell out like thousands of dollars to me because insurance is covering it. Um, so it doesn't necessarily need to be that extensive of a process, but that's the way that I do it. And I feel very, I feel like then I can sit down in front of somebody and have a very clear identification most of the time of what is or isn't going on for them. So I think just those little, like if you, if someone is not willing to do like an extensive evaluation, again, if you're want, if you're really wanting to get like an accurate diagnosis and assessment, you you just, you need more than like a half an hour to an hour, right? I mean, you need time for somebody to observe you. You need time for somebody to get a sense of your, and, and if you're, you need, they should be asking you about your childhood. If no one is asking you, 
about what things were like in childhood, whether or not you are able to have like other family members involved and things like that. If they're not asking you anything about your childhood, that's not appropriate. Like that's one of the biggest things that they need to be asking you. Um, so um, that would be just, I, I would say kind of guidance around like the assessment part of it is what I would be, I would encourage people to look for in an assessor. Um, and I think it's appropriate to ask like, hey, like how long is this process gonna take? What types of evaluations do you do? Now, some some assessors are a little bit more conservative around like they may not be willing to say like what specific measures they're going to administer. And part of that is because sometimes people will take that and they'll do research on the assessment and right, and it can kind of confound data or results, or they might try to skew their results in a certain direction. But any assessor should tell you pretty openly. Like I, I tell all my, I tell all my clients, we're going to do some cognitive testing. We're going to do some testing around executive functioning and attention and working memory. We're going to do some interviews, kind of targeting diagnostic criteria for autism and/or ADHD. We're going to do some rating forms. We're going to do a personality assessment. So I, and I feel like that gives, you know, I don't necessarily need to, and I, I do tell people like the assessments that I use to, I personally don't have a problem with that, but some people do. Um, but you should have somebody who's like willing to kind of talk through what that process is going to look like so that you know, kind of what you're getting into. Yeah. Um so that's it, like on the, I would say like, that's the big thing on the assessment side. Um, there is also, uh, there's a neurodivergent therapist directory that is available. Um, and so um, that is just ND, ND for neurodivergenttherapist.com. Um, and it is a website that, so um, therapists who identify as neurodivergent themselves um, are, there's a directory of us. I'm I'm a part of that um, as well. So if you are looking specifically for a neurodivergent therapist, um, and there you might find some assessment resources on there too. Um, that's a good spot to look. Um, and there's uh, there it's mostly based in the U.S., um, but I do think that they're they're working on an international. Um, on the international side of things too. So I'm on the website right now and I'm seeing options for uh, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Ireland, Poland, Spain, and the UK. Um, oh, okay. So that's a good, if you're looking specifically for like a neurodivergent provider, whether that be for therapy or for assessment, that's a good spot to go. Um, and even if you get connected with somebody who just does like therapy and maybe they don't do testing, they might be able to help point you in a direction of like, a, like an assessor that they would recommend to. Um, yeah. So cool. I didn't know that website existed. So that's, uh, that's a really I good can send you. I can send you the link to that if you want to put that like in your show notes. And yeah, I can put all that in the show notes. That's cool. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And it's cool that so many therapists are offering like, um, telehealth now and like zoom sessions, because that means that you don't, you're not limited to your general area because some people may live in an area where there isn't going to be a neurodivergent, um, therapist. And so it's cool to like, know that you can see someone who's not necessarily local to your area. So that opens yeah. a lot of doors too. That, that's really, I'm, 
Yeah, I'm located in Iowa. Uh -huh. um, there's a lot of rural, I'm in a pretty rural area. There's a lot of really rural areas and I do fully telehealth at this point. And that's been really awesome because people from all over the state, I can only see people in the state of Iowa because that's where I'm licensed. Um, but I can see people from all over the state and the telehealth aspect is really great. Um, and there are like, um, so some people are able to practice outside of their jurisdiction. So with psychology in particular, um, there's a, an organization called SciPact. Um, and basically, if certain states have like opted into this compact, basically, then um, it basically grants like, it grants licensure or like jurisdiction rights to people as long as you're in one of these like states. Now, I was not one of those states, unfortunately. Um, but any, any psychologist who resides within a SciPact state essentially can practice in any other state that is part of the SIPACT program. I see. Cool. So, so you could be, uh, you know, you could be in one state, your client could be in another state mm -hmm. and you could still be providing those services. So I would say, you know, you don't necessarily, if you're, if you're a consumer, if you're a client who's looking for an assessment um, and you live in a SIPACT state, which you could find if you did like a Google, like is such and such state part of SIPACT? And SIPACT is P-S-Y-P-A-C-T, SIPACT. Uh -huh. uh, then you you might even be able to get an assessment from somebody who's in a totally different state than you, right? If you, if you needed to do that, and if that was really like where the best, if you found like a really awesome, like autistic there, you know, autistic psychologist in, an, in a different state, you know, you, that could be an option for you as well. Cool. Yeah. All right. That's, that was just like so much good info. I love it. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say or feel like we didn't touch on that you wanted to get out there or anything? Um, I don't know. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I know. I know. I always am like, yeah, I, I really could. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone wants a 20 part episode. Um, but yeah, I feel like we covered most of the general bases. I feel I'm like searching my brain. I'm like, I feel like there's other things that I want to ask that I didn't, but maybe like, if we think of things, we can do a part two to this yeah. episode, you know, or if there's questions that people have that they're curious about that you might be able to answer, um, you know, email me people and we can, we can have like a Q and a or something, um, if you're open to doing that, but, uh, yeah, this was a really good, uh, enlightening conversation and it gives me and probably others hope that there are, um, good psychologists out there, like good, I put the word in quotes, like good, like just because someone, yeah, I think there's a lot of good psychologists, but I mean, good for the neurodivergent perspective. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, a lot of, a lot more out there than we probably think. It's just how to find them, how to seek them out. Mm -hmm. Um, and you gave some really good tips on that. So that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think that's good. And we'll, we'll wrap up and I will, yeah, be on the lookout for, for if anybody has questions for you specifically or 
Maybe we can do a part two at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to come back anytime. So yeah, especially if anyone listening has a question and yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do a Q&A or yeah, what other format? Like I just, my heart, like I want to be helpful to the autistic community and the neurodivergent community. And I feel like being in the professional field, like in the mental health field and being neurodivergent myself, I'm just, I'm hoping that there's a way that I can kind of help bridge that gap, you know, and make things, I want things to feel accessible to people. Um, and I want you to feel like your voices are being heard. Um, Cause I feel like our, the autistic community adults, especially like, I feel like our voices have been silenced for so long. Um, so yeah, anything I can do to help like, contribute you know to the cause and be and be of help I'm more than happy to do yeah cool and I'll put your contact info at least your social media and stuff in the in the show notes too in case anybody wants to follow you or I know you said it's okay if people want to even reach out to you directly so that's another option there too and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and talk to everyone um and for everything that you're doing Yes. Thank you so much for letting me hijack your podcast and basically like inviting myself on. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. It was great. I mean, how am I going to find people if you guys don't come seek me out? So it's great. Anybody else, anybody who has like good and helpful things to say, uh, who wants to come on is, you know, is welcome. I feel like the more of us that are having our voices out there, the better, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 